good. Okay. Don't hit anything. Okay. Listen, thank you so much for having me here tonight. It's it's good to meet you. I don't think I've met anybody in here before except for Doug and Karen, but uh, you all seem like a friendly bunch. I know that Doug and Karen are certainly very friendly, so thank you for your hospitality and for having me here. We are going to be in, in John chapter 11 and chapter 12. Doug uh, tried to scare me there. It said 13 and 14, even though 13 and 14 are great chapters as well, but I have had my mind on John 11 and 12. Really, we'll spend most of our time in chapter 11, and then we we'll just get a little bit into chapter 12 tonight, but really we want to focus on, I want to focus on the story of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus. You know, I uh, preach a few weddings, I mean, I, I don't know how many weddings I've done, uh, a good number of weddings, but it seems like I really do a lot of funerals, and I don't know what that says or what that means, the fact that, uh, th that I do seemingly more funerals than I do weddings, but... Uh, being a, a preacher, and I know Doug could say the same thing, it seems that we're, I'm often confronted with death, with funerals, uh, with people who are mourning the loss of loved ones. And when we're in John chapter 11, we're in that kind of territory. We're dealing with death, we're dealing with those that are mourning the loss of a loved one, and we're dealing with Jesus as he deals with this situation. Uh, there's a story that's told about these two brothers lived in a small town, like, I'm from a small town, Cleveland, I'm not sure what the, Cleveland seems like a small town, okay, and uh, so this small town, these two boys that were brothers, everybody knew who they were, and they had a horrible reputation, everybody knew what kind of brothers these guys were, they were cheats, they were drunkards, they were womanizers, they were just awful, dirty, rotten scoundrels, you know, those kind of guys, well, the day came when one of the brothers died, and the surviving brother went to one of the preachers in that town and says, Listen, I would like for you to preach at the funeral of my brother. And he said, Furthermore, I have an offer to make for you. I will pay you $1,000 if at some point during the funeral you refer to my brother as a saint. Well, this preacher thought about this for a little while and he thought, Ugh, I know this man was no saint. Everybody in town knows that this man was no saint. But he really liked that idea of getting that $1,000. So he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he came up with an idea. And the day came for the funeral, and uh, so he stood there beside the casket, and he said, you know, the man that we're thinking about today, the man that's lying in this casket, he was a cheat. He was a drunkard. Uh, he was a womanizer. He was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He said, you know what kind of man this guy was. I know what kind of man this guy was. Everybody here knows what kind of man this guy was. He was awful. He said, but compared to his brother here, he was a saint. And so, I don't know whether he got the thousand dollars or not, but funerals. We all go to them. We're confronted with death. You know, actually, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 7, the author, who seems to be Solomon, encourages you to go to funerals and to think about death. It's, it's not a bad thing. That's what we're dealing with when we're in John chapter 11. The death of a man named Lazarus, those that are mourning his loss. What we'll do tonight, we'll kind of break up into three sections. There, there's really three things that I want to talk to you about from John chapters 11 and 12. Uh, maybe it'll be easy to remember these words because they all start with two letters, the, the letters R-E. Okay. First, we'll think about relationships. That's what I want us to think about first tonight. Secondly, we'll talk about resurrection. And that's, of course, a big subject in, in John 11. Thirdly tonight, I want us to think about reactions. Okay, we'll think about re relationships, resurrection, and reactions. 
Do you have your Bibles open to John chapter 11? Notice first of all something here that the Bible teaches us about relationships. This chapter begins like this. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the, the village of Mary and his sister, her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. By the way, that story about Mary anointing Jesus is actually told in the next chapter, but of course John knew that it, it, had take, it would take place, and he mentions it already here. Well, verse 3 says, So the sister sent word to him, saying, and notice these words, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. It goes on to say, But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Notice that already, we're only five verses into the chapter, but already twice we've been told that Jesus loves Lazarus. And now in this verse we're also told he also loves Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary. And as if, as if that wasn't enough, let me just jump ahead a little bit. Of course, verse 35 is a well-known verse. That's where it says, Jesus wept. Verse 36, the verse right after that said, So the Jews were seeing, see how he loved him. Three times in John chapter 11, the statement is made that Jesus loves Lazarus. And he loves Martha and he loves Mary, according to verse 5. Relationships. Some time ago, uh, a young man, and Doug would know who this young man is if I, if I named him. He was uh, uh, one of the campers at camp. Uh, he's from Seneca. <clears throat> he sent me a private message. And it was a message that had a video attached to it. And the video was of this guy who was basically, you know, rapping, you know, singing, but doing it, doing it kind of like a poem thing. But it was a video and it had the title, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And uh, so this young man said this to me and, and wanted to know my thoughts on it. So I watched it and, and I told him my thoughts. And I said, well, some of what the video says is good. Some of it I don't like and I explained why. But I don't know if, you're, if you've encountered anything like that before. There's kind of this uh, common thought out there that religion is bad. And sometimes the way it will be expressed like this, maybe a church will advertise it. will say, we're all about relationships, not religion. Uh, almost like you have to choose between religion and relationships. Well, I, I, I'm in favor of them both, okay? I'm pro-religion and pro-relationships. Uh, James, you know, talks about a pure and undefiled religion. In James 1, verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. There is such a thing as a pure and undefiled religion. So I'm not ready to give up on this idea of religion. And I don't think that we should say that we hate religion. But it's interesting, relationships really is built into, into that verse. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Well, that speaks, doesn't it, of relationships. So it's not like we have to pick and choose between religion and relationships. They're both important and, and they are, in fact, intertwined. But relationships are important, and I hope we all recognize that. We might say Christianity is all about relationships. In fact, we might say life is all about relationships. I mean, unless you're uh, choosing the path of being a hermit and living up in the mountains all by yourself, which, by the way, I don't think you should do, 
Life is all about relationships. I mean, we are constantly encountering people, aren't we? Here in church and outside and in our families and in schools and wherever you work, it's all about relationships. Well, then the question that should be, what kind of relationships should we have? Or, or what kind of relationships should we stri be striving to foster? These verses give us a strong clue, don't they? Jesus loved. Jesus loved. He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. And next week when we're at uh, Green Valley Bible Camp, Doug and I, uh, there's a lady back at my congregation, Jolene Schmidt. Doug, you know Gabriel Schmidt. This is uh, Gabriel's mother, Jolene. She has bought 200 bracelets that uh, you might be familiar with. They're, they're cloth bracelets and they have the initials WWJD on them. And she bought them with the intention that we can give them to the kids next week at Green Valley Bible Camp. I think it's a great idea. These bracelets, if you don't know what I'm talking about, those initials, WWJD, stand for, What Would Jesus Do? It's a great question to ask. It's a great question not only for young people to ask, but for all ages to ask. We should be asking, what would Jesus do as we live our lives? You know, the Bible repeatedly tells us that God wants us to be like Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29, for example, says, Those whom God foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. God wants you to be just like Jesus. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful question as you live your life and you make decisions and you interact with people and you've got choices to make, to say, okay, what would Jesus do? What would he do in this situation? How would he respond? What choice would he make? What decision would he make? And when it comes to relationships, the answer to the question is, what would Jesus do? Well, the answer is, he would love. Jesus would love. We see him doing that here, but let's not think that these are the only three people that Jesus loved. You might know this already. In fact, I don't know. You know of course, several speakers have preceded me here this summer, talking about the Gospel of John. And so maybe you've heard this said already. John has a nickname. The man that wrote this book, John has a nickname. He's called the Apostle of Love. And the reason being is because he wrote so much about love. You read the Gospel of John, you read 1 John, you read 2 John, you read 3 John, you read the book of Revelation, those are the five books of John, and you're going to find the word love just again and again and again and again. Like in the famous John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. John chapter 13 Verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I mean, on and on and on again we go. There are so many passages where John emphasizes love. And of course, in many of those passages, he's simply recording the words of Jesus who emphasized love. Jesus not only loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he loved John. John calls himself, not John, but he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't think that that means that John was being arrogant and was saying, hey, look at me, Jesus loves me, but not these other guys. No, I think it's more like this. I think he's saying, I'm so thankful that Jesus loved me. I mean, Jesus also loved Peter and Andrew and, and James and all those other apostles. Jesus just, he loved. Period. Jesus even loved the people that drove the nails through his body. 
You remember Jesus' prayer as he was being crucified in Luke chapter 23? He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Is that not an expression of love? It absolutely is. Do that. You want to keep your spot here in John 11? Let's go over to Matthew chapter 5, which is probably a well-known passage to you. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's the first chapter of the three chapters that make up the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a chapter where Jesus talks about love. At the very end of this chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 43, He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, No, 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 no. I said you love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, isn't that exactly what Jesus did when he uttered his prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were know not what they do. He was loving his enemies. He was praying for those that was persecuting him. Jesus was a man who practiced what he preached. He goes on to say in verse 45 that when we do this, when we love our enemies, it says, You may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends His righteous, or sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, have you all been praying for rain lately? We need rain, don't we? I know uh, the people back home in Seneca, that's, that's something that we've been talking about. We need rain. Well, we've gotten some rain in the past week, but I don't, I don't think it's quite enough, right? We still need some more rain. Uh, the rain in this passage, and I think sometimes people misuse this verse, and, and uh, their intentions are good, but in this verse, God is talking about blessings. Jesus is talking about blessings that God sends on people. The rain and the sun, those are blessings, that God sends not only unrighteous people, but also on unrighteous people. When it rained this past week, did you look outside and did you see, was it raining on this person's field, but not on this person's field right next to it? Or, or raining on this yard, but not on this yard, but raining on this yard? That's not exactly the way it works, is it? God sends His rain both on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends the sun down to nourish the gardens and the plants and the, and the yards and the fields of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is making the point that God the Father loves not only those that love Him, but He also loves those that hate Him. He blesses even those that are ugly to Him. Jesus does the same thing as He prays. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus is emphasizing here, when you love your enemies, you prove yourselves to be sons of the Father. There's that old expression, like father, like son. Have you ever thought about this? You show yourself to be, uh, you, you prove whose son you are by the way that you act. And over in John chapter 8, Jesus says, you are sons of the devil. Talking to some Jews there. He was a liar. He's a murderer. You're a liar. You're, you're wanting to kill me. However you act, that proves whose son you are. You know, very often, well, I, I have two sons. My oldest son, Jude, Doug, he's going to be at camp next week, his first year of camp. For years, people have said that Jude looks like me. Every now and then I'll say, yeah, don't you feel sorry for the boy? You know, he looks like his dad. That's often true in a physical sense, like, right, like father, like son. But it's also often true in behaviors. Sometimes it's, you know, have you ever noticed, I've noticed this, a father likes a particular sports team, his son likes that same sports team as well. Isn't that interesting how that works? It's not really surprising, is it? And, and that, in those days, you know, it was normal Jewish tradition for a son to follow in the footsteps of his father. Jesus was raised up by Joseph. What was Joseph? He was a carpenter. What was Jesus? He was a carpenter. Look at Matthew 13, 55. Look at Mark 6, verse 3. Both Joseph and Jesus were carpenters. It was normal Jewish tradition for a son to follow in the footsteps of his father. 
When we love our enemies, it's like father, like son. Jesus goes on to say in verse 46, If you love those that love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do the same? It's easy to love people that love you. It's easy to be kind to people that are kind to you. Sometimes I hear people say something like, "Oh, you know, I've seen it on Facebook before. I'll, I'll show respect for anybody that shows respect for me. Christians, you know that we're supposed to go beyond that, right? Yeah, go ahead and show respect to people that show respect to you. But you should also show respect to people that don't show respect to you. We don't just love people that love us. We love everyone. If we're going to be like our Father. If we're going to be like Jesus. We live in a nation that just seems so divided right now. Politics. I mentioned Facebook a moment ago. I'm on Facebook. I don't know whether you are or not. I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook. Sometimes I love it, sometimes I hate it. Uh, a lot of my news feed on Facebook seems to be devoted to politics. People making posts about politics. And a lot of those posts about politics really... In fact, I would say probably 99% of them, maybe I'm just being pessimistic here, but maybe 99% of them seem to be pretty ugly posts about politics. Pretty hateful. Pretty mean. And now here's where it's really going to get sad. It seems like most of those ugly posts about politics are made by other Christians. What about the, have you heard this expression, snowflake? That's being thrown around a lot. Just to some people who are on the other side politically from where some people are, well, they'll call them a term like snowflake. Are you still in Matthew 5? Look at verse 22. In verse 21, you've heard that the ancients were told you should not commit murder. Verse 22, I say everyone who is angry, angry with his brother, shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, and by the way, I use the New American Standard Bible, just to let you know the translation I'm using. You good for nothing is what's used here. The, the Greek word here is, is reka. Uh, well, he'll be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, is guilty enough to go in the fiery hell. Jesus, notice he says, don't commit murder. But there's also anger issues to think about. And there's also insults that we need to think about. Now, I know that Jesus didn't use the word snowflake here, but don't you think that that's included as well? Don't you think that other insulting terms are included as well? I don't think Jesus needed to go through every insult in the history of mankind, including ones that are used in 2018, for us to understand that when Jesus says, don't insult other people, that applies to all kinds of insults. Don't be hateful when it comes to those with whom you disagree about politics. Now what about this? What about those that we disagree with when it comes to religion? Should we speak the truth? Yes. But should we speak the truth in love? Yes. Ephesians 4 verse 15 says exactly that. Speaking the truth in love. Listen, if we're going to be like Jesus, Jesus loved. And He did. And I, you know, I suspect, I'm just kind of guessing here, I suspect that Lazarus and Martha and Mary were probably pretty easy to love. You know, what I read about them in the New Testament, they seem like people that would be pretty easy to love. But Jesus didn't just love Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He loved the people that drove the nails through his wrists and through his feet. 
And when it comes to those with whom we disagree religiously, we speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. And in case there's ever any question about what love is like or what love means, you know, Paul gave us some pretty good descriptions, didn't he, in what's called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when he said things like, love is patience, love is kind. He says, love does not act unbecomingly, or another translation, love is not rude. Don't be rude to those with whom you disagree with about politics. Don't be rude with those with whom you disagree when it comes to religious matters. Speak the truth, but speak the truth in love, which means, among other things, that you're patient with people and that you're kind with people. Some time ago, I was studying, I was, I was using a website. I think it might have been Study Light or something like that. I don't know. But uh, on the bottom of this, of this page, as I was looking at a commentary or something, on the bottom of the page there was what appeared to be an advertisement. And, and the fact that this advertisement appears on this website indicates that, I mean, you, you, can, you can tell, it was aimed at, at people like me. Aimed at, aimed at Christians or, or, you know, or you know, people that would use this kind of website. And here's what it said. It said, how to shut up an atheist in 15 seconds. Now think about that for a minute. It was a video, you know, I could have clicked on the video and then they would have explained to me how I could shut up an atheist in 15 seconds. I didn't click on it. Had no interest in clicking on it. Is that the kind of attitude? Is, is, that, what we're at? is that what we're trying to do? Are we trying to shut up atheists in 15 seconds? Or... Are we trying to engage in conversations with people and do what James said to do in James 1.19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Are we trying to shut them up in 15 seconds or are we trying to speak the truth in love? Which in love means that you're patient with people and you're kind to people. How about hearing them out? Listening to them? And then when you do speak in response, you do so with kindness. Gentleness, that's another term we find in the Bible, like in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, kindness and gentleness. That's the way you need to treat the atheist. After all, listen to me, folks. Our goal, ultimately, is not to win an argument. Our goal is to win a soul. You know what it says in Proverbs 15, verse 1? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I did a sermon series. And Doug, I noticed you're teaching Revelation on, on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I recently finished up a sermon series from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus has a message to each of the seven churches of Asia. One of those churches... I'll, I'll just turn over here. By the way, Revelation is written by John, the same man that wrote the Gospel of John that we're studying tonight. I will get back to the Gospel of John eventually, I promise. But in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, verse 8, Behold, I have put before you an open door. And it's interesting, you, you look at other passages that talk about an open door. Colossians 4 is one of them and there's others. You get the impression it's talking about an opportunity. An opportunity for evangelism. And so think about this. We have these opportunities all around us to share the Word and hopefully to win souls. But how often has Jesus put before us an open door and a Christian, you or I or some other Christian, have come along and in a sense we have closed the door by using harsh language, by being unkind, 
You know, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Seems to me like a harsh word is a pretty good, a pretty, a pretty good way to end a conversation fast and to close the door and to make that opportunity disappear. If you want that person to keep listening to you, you might try gentleness and kindness. I probably should move on to my second point, but I... Let me say one more thing. Is there any salesman in this room? Maybe I should ask that before I say this, okay? Any car salesman or anything? Sometimes salesmen have a bad reputation of being, you know, manipulative or, or whatever, you know, being uh, dishonest. But I don't, think, I don't think all salesmen are like that. I was at a, a car lot recently because uh, I was having my car worked on. And so there, this, it's a Ford place in Joplin and one side of it is a service station and then the other side of it, they, they sell cars. And so I was at the service station, but while I was waiting on my car to get worked on, I went and looked around at the, the cars, the new cars that were being sold, just kind of killing time. And uh, as you can imagine, I was approached by a couple of salesmen. And I just got to think, I, I got to thinking about sales, and I got to thinking about evangelism. And I'm not saying that, that evangelism is exactly sales, but I mean, in a sense, are, in a sense, can you follow me? In a sense, aren't we trying to sort of sell Christianity? I mean, not that we expect to make any money off of it or anything, but, but we're trying to get people to become Christians, right? We're trying to get people to become disciples of Christ. Does, and maybe we should take some clues from salesmen. Salesmen are nice. <laughs> Salesmen are kind. Salesmen will tell you positive things about whatever they're trying to sell. It seems to me like that might be a good way to go about evangelism. Be kind to people. Be nice. Tell them the positive things that, that we have that with Christianity, that God loves them, and that God wants their soul to be saved, and oh, isn't heaven going to be wonderful, and isn't the Lord compassionate, and, and uh, I need to move on to my second point. But here, here's my first point. Relationships. Life is all about relationships, and if we're going to have relationships like Jesus did, and we're going to ask that question, what would Jesus do? One of the things I see in John chapter 11, Jesus would love be known as a person who loves. Okay, number two. Number two. Let's move on to our, our second R-E word, okay? We talked about relationships. Now let's talk about what's really the center of this chapter, resurrection. When Doug sent out the email, uh, he sent out an email and, and, and uh, me and other preachers and said, okay, you know, pick a couple of chapters. And uh, if I remember correctly, Doug, it's been a little while, if I remember correctly, this one kind of stood out to me because I'm kind of big on resurrection. I love to talk about resurrection, and of course I knew John chapter 11 was about resurrection. Of course, John chapter 20 is also about resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. John 5 talks about resurrection, I'll get there in a second. But uh, John 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. Let me tell you why I'm big on resurrection. Well, I I'm big on being biblical. And I know Doug is, and I know I, I trust that you all are as well. Don't we want to? Don't we want to be biblically correct, biblically sound? But here's here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that at funerals, or when we talk about death, we might put it like this: we might say, "Okay, when a person dies, their soul goes to heaven, or goes to hell, depending." And that's the end of the story. And if that's the way we tell the story, we're really leaving some things out. Okay? In particular, what I'm thinking of is we're leaving out resurrection. Okay? 
We're leaving out resurrection. Here's a great definition. Let me, let me, and I got this from Wayne Jackson, but he got it from, from other places. The word resurrection, the Greek word, well, most of the time in, in, in the Bible, it comes from the Greek word anastasis, which is derived from two root words, ana, which means up, and histomai, which means to cause to stand. A resurrection, therefore, Wayne Jackson says, is the rising up of that which has been laid down. It's talking about the body, folks. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about resurrection. The body is laid down when in, after death. Resurrection is when that body stands up again. The resurrection of Lazarus is when his body stood up again, when it came alive again. The resurrection of Jesus is when his body stood up again, when it came alive again. Go back to John chapter 5 with me. Go back to John chapter 5. I, I think, uh, was it Joshua? Or, uh, I don't know, somebody, I don't know who had John 5. And I don't know if he covered this, this part or not, and that's okay. But let me just refresh your memory, if, it, if you have looked at this already. John 5, 28 and 29. Jesus makes a great promise here. He says, Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds were a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds were a resurrection of judgment. All who are in the tombs. Your translation, I know other, like the King James and other translations, instead of saying tombs here, it says graves. I actually like the word graves better because that's what we think about. I, you know, usually we don't bury people in tombs, around here anyway. But we do bury people in graves, don't we? Listen, folks. I believe this word. I believe this passage, every word of it. I believe it literally. I believe that there is coming a day in which every graveyard on planet Earth is going to be emptied. Every tomb. Every grave. Every dead body is going to come alive again. That's what we put in tombs, right? In graves. That's where we put bodies. That's not where the soul goes. That's where the body goes. Resurrection is talking about the fact that dead bodies are going to come alive again. What happens when a person dies? James gives us a pretty good definition of death in James 2 verse 26. He says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. You separate faith and works, well that's a dead faith. You separate the body and the spirits, that's a dead body. What happens to the body? Well, it's, it's put in the ground. Sometimes it's cremated, sometimes maybe it's lost at sea or eaten by an animal or all kinds of things can happen to dead bodies. I'll come back to that in a minute. What about the spirit? Well, there's various passages that give us indications. Uh, there is, for example, Acts 2, verse 27. Jesus' soul, between his death, and his, his death and his resurrection, well, the passage says this, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus' soul went to a place called Hades between his death and his resurrection. And the word Hades is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Sheol. In fact, Acts 2.27 is a quotation of Psalm 16.10, which uses the word Sheol. But what these terms refer to is the realm of the dead. Jesus' soul was in the realm of the dead between His death and His resurrection. You remember as Jesus was being crucified, there was a thief there. Jesus said to him, "'Today you'll be with me in paradise.'" That tells us that Jesus' soul went to a part of Hades called Paradise, as did the soul of that thief. There's another place in Hades that's a place of torment that we read about in Luke 16, verses 19 and following. Here's the picture we get from these passages and others. 
When a person dies, their soul, their spirit, in other words, goes to this place called Hades. It might go to the place called Paradise in Hades, or it might go to the place called Torment in Hades. But that is not the end of the story. Because according to the promise here in John 5, verses 28 and 29, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, the graves, will hear His voice and come forth. In other words, the souls will leave Hades, come back to their bodies, and those bodies will come alive again. Before I get to this resurrection story in John 11, can you look with me over in the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter... Oh, let's see here. I forget, but I'll tell you when I get there. I think it's Luke chapter 9. No, it's Luke chapter 8. I was close. There's a, you know, there are three stories of Jesus bringing dead people back to life. There's the widow's son in Nain. That's back in uh, Luke chapter 7. Then there's this story, Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. And then, of course, there's the one that I will get to in, in John 11. But here, Jairus' daughter died. And then here, her resurrection is described like this in verse 55. Her spirit returned. And she got up immediately and he gave, something, gave orders for something to be given to her. Spirit returns to the body. And then the body comes alive again. Well, you might ask the question, well, what about, what if, what if the person's body was cremated? What if they were lost at sea? What if, uh, uh, what if they were eaten by an animal and went through that animal's digestive system? Paul answers this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When the resurrection takes place, a transformation takes place. God transforms that body. But it's still the same body. If it's not the same body, the idea of resurrection becomes meaningless. It's the same body, but it is transformed into a new body, suited in going into heaven. Maybe your loved one, maybe there's nothing left of them but ashes. Nothing but dust. But listen to me. If God could take dust at the beginning of time and fashion that into the body of Adam, I think He can take dust at the end of time and fashion it into a body as well. Resurrection. We better get... I'm going to run out of time if we don't get to our story. Let's get to our story here in John chapter 11. Here's a picture of it. Here's a preview of what we can expect at the end of time as Jesus brings a dead man named Lazarus back from the grave. We don't have time to look at all these verses. Let's drop, let's drop down to verse 17. Jesus... I'm in John 11:17. When Jesus came, came to Bethany, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Here's an interesting note. In fact, I think I just read this this week that I jotted down in my Bible. Many Jews believe that the soul remained near the body for three days after death in the hope of it returning. If this idea was in the minds of these people, they obviously thought now that all hope was gone, that Lazarus was irrevocably dead. Isn't that interesting? He's been dead four days. If it had just been three days, some Jews might have been hanging on to hope. Well, maybe, maybe you know, maybe his soul's still hanging around and, and he might be, come back to life. Well, it's been four days. So they, at this point, they're thinking, he's, he's a goner. He's dead. What's the expression? Dead as a doornail? Yeah. Irrevocably dead. Okay. Well, notice it says, verse 18, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Mar Martha, therefore, when she heard Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here. And notice these words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Great, th great faith on Martha's point, uh, part here, isn't it? Yeah. She knows that Jesus can do something. Verse 22, Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Now look at Martha in verse 24. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
I'll tell you what, I like this Martha. I like Martha. She's right in her first statement. If you'd been here, Jesus, my brother would not have... I know you could have kept him from dying. And now she makes this great statement. I know that he'll rise again on the last day. She's absolutely right. By the way, after Lazarus came back alive again, even though the Bible doesn't say it, I have no doubt that he died again. And I have no doubt that what Martha said right here is true. He will rise on the last day. Along with my grandmother, who's died. My grandfather, who's died. Your loved ones, who have died. Everybody, according to John 5. Remember what we read in John 5? Everyone who's ever died. Everyone who ever will die. Their body will be resurrected. Martha's exactly right. But Jesus has something else in mind right now, doesn't he? Uh, notice he goes on to say, well, he makes the great statement... In verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. There's lots of I am statements in here. Let's, get, let's drop down a few verses. Let's drop down to Mary. Uh, verse 31, the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw Mary got up quickly, went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Mary came where Jesus was. She saw him, fell at his feet. She said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Sound familiar? That's the exact same thing Martha said back in verse 21. I love what one commentary says that I have. Note that the words of Mary were the same as Martha's. How many times had they repeated these words to each other in the last four days? Don't you think that's right? Have you lost a loved one before? And uh, you've sat around in the days after that, and maybe you've beaten yourselves up, and maybe you said, well, if we had tried this medicine, or you know, if, uh, if, you, if we'd gotten them to the doctor sooner. Or, and, and how many times do people sit around and, and say things like that to each other? And don't you just imagine Mary and Martha these past four days have been just on and on saying to each other, if Jesus had been here, if only Jesus had been here, he'd still be alive. You know, it's, it's like it's, at this point it's just become a, a pattern that they say. And so she says the same thing Martha said. Well, weeping goes on. Jesus wept. Verse 35. I'm just going to have to keep trucking or I'm going to run out of time. Let's drop on down to the resurrection. Let's read it. Verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And then that's exactly what happens. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was unwrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said, Unbind him and let him go. The soul of Lazarus, the spirit of Lazarus, was in Hades, but it left Hades, came back to his body, and his body came alive again. That's a resurrection. The resurrection of Lazarus. I love this. I love this. There's a quaint Puritan writer who said about Jesus, if Jesus had not named Lazarus when he shouted, he would have emptied the whole cemetery. <laughs> right? If he would have just said, come forth, well, whoever's buried there, everybody would have been coming out of the grave. That's, that's really what's going to happen at the end of time, isn't it? Everyone's going to hear the, the, the voice of Jesus and come forth. But he specifies, now just Lazarus right now, okay? <laughs> Nobody else, the rest of you stay put. Just Lazarus, come forth. And that's who did. Lazarus came forth. Okay, I'm going to move on to my third point. Resurrection. It's important. It's biblical. It's biblical. When somebody dies, we love to say he's in a better place. And if it's a Christian who died, yeah, he is in a better place. He's in a place called paradise. That's what Jesus called it in Luke 23. But that's not the end of the story. A day of resurrection is coming. What happened to Lazarus is going to happen to that loved one. What happened to Jesus? Jesus is the first. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Jesus is the first. The first fruits of those who are asleep. What happened to Jesus? Resurrected never to die again. That is going to happen to all Christians one day. And those that are lost, 
they'll be resurrected as well. Guys, it's not just going to be souls in hell. Bodies will be in hell. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those that can kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Resurrected bodies, transformed bodies will be in heaven. Bodies will be in hell as well. Everyone is going to be resurrected. Point number three, and then we'll close tonight. We've talked about relationships. We've talked about, uh, uh, we've talked about resurrection. Now let's talk about reactions. We're trying to wrap up about 8 o'clock. Doug, is that all right? Okay. At least by midnight. Uh, at least by midnight. Okay. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll follow Paul's example. And yeah. No, we'll, we'll, we'll get it wrapped up here. Notice the reactions to what happens to this amazing miracle. And, and I kind of look at this as like the pinnacle of the miracles of Jesus. You know? Oh, well, there were a few resurrections, but wow. I mean, it's one, thing to, it's one thing to heal a sick person. And that's, I'm not trying to take away, I'm not trying to take away anything from that. That's amazing. But it's another thing to, so to speak, heal somebody that's so sick that they're dead, right? And that's exactly what Jesus did with Lazarus. Okay. Notice the reactions to this amazing thing. Well, verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary when, uh, and saw what he had done believed. By the way, when we're talking about the Gospel of John in particular, John picks out certain miracles, signs he calls them, and he says, I wrote down these signs so that people would believe. When we get to John 20, verses 30 and 31, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples. I mean, John doesn't even record all the ones that, that you can find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, not written in this book, in the Gospel of John, but these have been written so that you would believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe that you may have life in His name. Oh, that seems to be exactly what happened here. Many of the Jews who came to Mary, when they saw what they had done, believed in Him. But, but some of the Pharisees, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. I won't read the next verse. The rest of the chapter, basically one reaction to this is, we've got to kill Jesus. Okay? That's one way that the, the Jewish leaders respond. And as if that's not enough, go ahead and drop down into chapter 12. Let me show you this. John 12, verse 10. The chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were gone away and were believing in Jesus. One of the study Bibles I have pointed out, the Jewish leaders previously had spoken of the death of one man. Talking about Jesus, back in chapter 11, verse 50. But now they wanted another death. Sin grows. Sin grows. Christians, yeah, you allow yourself to do one thing, and then you might find it easier to do something else. Uh, one affair, well, that might make a second affair easier. You know, one uh, hateful thought, well, that might make another hateful thought easier. So one reaction to the resurrection of Lazarus is, let's kill Jesus. And let's kill Lazarus. Of course, some believed. And then let's look at chapter 12. Let's, let's just spend a little bit of time in chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, by the way, this is the, 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 the basically six days before Jesus is going to die, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. They made a supper for Jesus. And Martha was serving. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Isn't that great? This man was dead. Now he's sitting at a table having a meal with Jesus. 
Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intended to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? Given to poor people. By the way, I don't know if, you, if you're one of those people that have notes in your, in your Bible. Mine has a note here on 300 denarii. Equivalent to 11, 11 months wages. That's almost a whole year. I don't know how much, you don't have to tell me, I don't know how much money you make in a year, but imagine having pretty much your entire yearly salary wrapped up in a, a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. That's pretty expensive perfume, isn't it? Pretty valuable. I'd hate for that to, get, to fall on the floor and break, right? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, look at what Mary does with it. Anoints the feet of Jesus. Judas speaks up and says, Hey, we could have sold this. We could have fed a lot of poor people with this. Now verse 6 explains, He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so she may keep her for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Now I want to read you, some, read you something that I found on the internet. It's written by, uh, written by a man named John Piper. My understanding is John Piper is a Baptist, and he and I no doubt would disagree about a number of things, but, but I like what he said about this. Okay? And, I, and I want to share with you what he said about this story. Those words in verse 2, they gave a dinner for him there. In other words, Piper says, this is a celebration of the resurrection of Lazarus. I suspect that's exactly right. They gave this dinner. This is a thank you dinner to Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. Not just an ordinary evening meal among friends. Its focus is on Jesus and His amazing power in raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is right there reclining at the table as exhibit A of the wonder of it all. Martha served. Lazarus was at the table. My sense is that this dinner had been planned specifically to honor Jesus and to thank Him for the overwhelming miracle of life for Lazarus. Martha's in her usual place of, of organizing the meal and making sure it's well served. We see her doing that in the Gospel of Luke as well. Mary's about to express her heart to Jesus in a lavish way. Lazarus is quietly waiting uh, the table, watching the one who gave him life. Verse 3 begins with the word, therefore. And the point is that since this is a dinner to honor and thank Jesus for his life, his gift of life, Mary will now give, make her presentation. Perhaps the whole family planned this moment. You know, this, this is siblings here. Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Maybe they were all in on this. Uh, Mary will now make her presentation. Uh, perhaps they pulled their savings to buy this gift. Maybe it was a hugely valuable family heirloom that had been passed on for years and now was the time to pour it out. So Martha's role was to thank Jesus by seeing to the details of the dinner. Mary's role was to thank Jesus by pouring this expensive ointment out on Him. In both these ways, they would express their wonder and joy and thanks for the greatness of Jesus and His grace and His power to raise Lazarus from the dead. I like that. A meal to say, thank you, Jesus. You brought our dead brother Lazarus back to life. And we want to tell you thank you. We want to, we want to have this meal in your honor. We want to anoint you with this extremely expensive perfume. Thank you, Jesus. That's the reaction I want to close with tonight. Let's think about some application here. Has Jesus done something wonderful for you? 
Has He promised to do something wonderful for you in the future? Yeah. We could count our blessings. We could talk about the way He's forgiven us. We could talk about things that He does even for those that aren't Christians. The way that we talked about the sun and the rain earlier. We could talk about all the wonderful things that the Lord has blessed us. Now, shouldn't we be grateful, thankful? How might we express that thankfulness? Well, one way is by saying thank you. Thank you, Father. Right? We pray with thank. Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Sometimes we sing songs where we express thankfulness. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to Him, that is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to His name. But here's something else we might do. Notice the sacrifice involved here. This perfume was expensive. It almost cost a year's worth of a salary to pay for this perfume. This was a tremendous sacrifice on the part of Mary and maybe on the part of, of Martha and Lazarus as well. Maybe they were in on it. This was a tremendous sacrifice to express thanks to Jesus. You look at the book of Romans. And you could kind of divide the book of Romans into, well, chapters 1 through 11. Well, you might kind of call it the doctrinal uh, section, the theological section, the, the deep section. The section where Paul talks about basically how merciful God has been to us. All of sin, but Jesus died for us. God has shown great mercy to us. And then chapter 12 begins the practical section. Uh, here, here's how you ought to live as Christians. You know, you ought to not take revenge, and you ought to obey the government, and you ought to, uh, you know, uh, he talks about matters of opinion, and you know, here's how, here's the ways that you ought to live out your life, practically speaking. But it all begins with this verse. You might say this is kind of the the, the transition verse in Romans, Romans 12 verse 1. It says, "I urge you." by the mercies of God, or we might say, in view of the mercies of God, to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. Pleasing to God. This is your spiritual service. Because God has been so merciful, I'm paraphrasing here, express your gratitude by giving yourself as a sacrifice. Sacrifice. Or we might say it like this, in view of the sacrifice of Jesus... I'm going to live my life as a sacrifice to Him. Let's express gratitude. Reactions. That's what we see in the, in the third and final part of our lesson tonight. We're about to sing a song. Maybe somebody needs to react in a certain way tonight. Have you been baptized? If you haven't been baptized, that's the reaction that you need to have right now. The Bible says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are the words of Acts 2, verse 38. And later on in Acts, in Acts 22, verse 16, Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Could we assist you with that tonight? Maybe you'd like for us to say a prayer on your behalf tonight. I'm going to reach into my pocket here, and I'm going to turn off this recording. And if we can 